0: Uh, My name's Becky, and I'm a member here at Christ First. Um, I'm married to Dave, and I have a one-year-old daughter called Chloe. Um, They're not here this week, so hello! (laughs) Um, But we'll be here next week. Um, Right. Oh, I'm in charge of this. I didn't think I'd be in charge, but I am. On. Oh, yeah. Ah, Right, I'm doing... um, parable of Good Samaritan, um, which is my new favorite parable. Um, So we're just going to start by reading it. And um, Oh, good. Okay, I can see it. That's good, because I didn't print it out. Um, I'll I'll just read it. Um, It's from Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? he took pity on him he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine then he went to the mat then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him the next day he took out 2 denarii and gave them to the innkeeper look after him he said and when i return i will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have which of these 3 do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, um, this is a Sunday school classic, this parable. And rightly so, it's full of drama and the unexpected. It's, (laughs) It's such an evocative story. Um, that it's reached all the way from first century Israel right into our secular morality over here in the West. We have, um, in the West, we have laws that are named after the Good Samaritan, and it's even taught in schools as an example of Christian morality. And the fact that it's so well known throughout all our culture um, really demonstrates what an amazing communicator Jesus was. Um, now, there's a, a whole load of really interesting stuff um, in the whole conversation between Jesus and the teacher in the law. And I don't have time to do it all, so I'm just going to look at the seven scenes um, of the of the actual parable. Um, and at this point, I need to credit Ken Bailey, the amazing Ken Bailey, um, with um, his teaching on the parables in Luke. Anything interesting that I say, I've got it from him. Uh, right. Okay, next. Here we go, here we go. Um, so this is uh, verses 30 to 35, and they've been, um, they can be split up into seven different things that happen. Um, so number one, uh, man... I, I feel like I want to point, but I don't know where to point, so I'll just sort of gesture vaguely. <laughs> um, scene one, our poor man gets beaten up by robbers. Scene two, our priest... Passes by. Scene three, the Levite also passes by on the other side. Scene four, our Samaritan arrives and has pity on the man. Scene five, the Samaritan bandages up his wounds. Then, scene six, the Samaritan puts him on the donkey and transports him to an inn. And then the last scene, scene seven the Samaritan arranges payment for his continued care at the inn. Right, so, yeah, no, we're going to stay on, yeah, stay on that side. Um, So scene one, we've got our man um, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, half dead literally meant unconscious, so he was in a really, really bad way. Change page. So, next scene, enter priest. Um, Now, priests were very wealthy, and it was a long journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, so our priest was almost certainly on a donkey and not walking. So he sees the unconscious man at the side of the road. Do I stop and help him? He asks himself. Now, it's really easy at this point to dismiss the priest as selfish or a coward um, or say that his, his lack of compassion is, is a character flaw. But really, um, his decision is a product of the culture that he was living in. Um, his, yeah, his decision not to stop and help is really a lot more complicated than it first appears. So we're going to just zoom out of the parable for a second. Um, Jesus is in in conversation with a a legal expert, um, and that's who he's sort of telling this parable to. Um, And this scenario of the priest finding this beaten unconscious man is a legal puzzle. um, And there's a lot of legal questions surrounding it um, that the the legal expert and the priest in the story would have been thinking about. So we're just going to have a look at all those questions right now. Right. Number one, do I have a legal obligation as a Jewish priest to stop and help this man? I, if he is a Jew, then I must stop and help. But how do I know if he's a Jew? Number one, he's unconscious. Um, so he can't, he can't speak, he can't tell me, and I can't tell from his accent where he's from. Um, and also, He's naked. I can't tell from his clothes um, you know, where, he, where he's from because clothing in, in that culture at that time um, was, was a way of showing people who you were. So the priest really doesn't know. Um, next question, is he already dead? Um, if he was and the priest goes within six feet of the dead man, he becomes unclean priest then has to go all the way back up to Jerusalem, find a red heifer, burn it to ash, and carry out a lot of cleansing rituals that take a whole week long to then become clean again and be able to go back to his normal life. If he does become unclean, he's not able to go to the temple and collect um, food for him and for his whole household so by becoming unclean, he's given having to give up his wages for a whole week. And, and all this for, for a man who, he might be dead already, and then I can't help him. If he's alive right now, but the, uh, but the priest goes, goes to help him, and then the man dies, under the law, the, the priest is obligated to tear his robes. Very, very expensive robes. Um, and he may also then get criticism from others because of the laws surrounding um, destroying valuable property. Um, and, if it, and if he's not a Jew, there's no legal obligation to do that. So it's, it is a, a legal puzzle. The priest weighs all of this up and decides he's going to ride on. And I wonder if the legal expert Jesus is having the conversation with would have come to the same conclusion. Is he starting to realize that the strict legalism that he stands for doesn't allow space for love? If you want to know why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus is right here. Jesus is showing their culture for what it truly is, and Jesus wants to take it down. The the law of Moses has been twisted so much that all of the love has been wrung out of it. And Jesus is saying, no more. This cold and compassionless legalism, the time for it is over, and it's time for something new. It's time for the kingdom of God. Right, let's zoom back in to our parable. So scene three, our third paragraph. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, Levites were like assistant priests. They weren't as wealthy, so he was probably walking. Um, And Levites thinking, well, if my boss has just gone by, and and thinks that the the correct interpretation of the law is, is to carry on, who am I to question that? He's my boss. He's got the perfect excuse to just carry on. So, scene four, it's looking really, really desperate for this beaten man. His only chances of help have just passed him by. And then, along comes a Samaritan... Now, for the Jews listening to this story, they think, ah, the Samaritan is the villain in the story. He's probably going to put this man out of his misery. But no, something very... Expect- um, yeah, because Samaritans were hated outsiders in this, co- in, this, in this country. They would always be the villain in the story. But the Samaritan stops and takes pity on the man. This is the turning point In this story and it's why it comes right in the middle of our seven scenes. This is is the the climax and the remaining scenes um, now mirror the ones that came before it. So in scene five we see the Samaritan bandaging the wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The Levite could have done this but he didn't And so the Samaritan makes up for the Levites' failings. And then, in scene six, the Samaritan puts the man on his donkey and transports him to an inn. Now the priest had a donkey. The priest could have done this, but he didn't. And so the Samaritan makes up for the priest's failings. Now the Samaritan taking... Um, this, this man into an inn in a village, in a, in a place where he was a hated outsider. If, if people already think you're a villain and you arrive at, at the pub with a, a half-dead man on your donkey, what are people going to think? He took a great personal risk to do this. So in our last scene, the Samaritan makes sure of the man's complete and whole recovery. Now, under the law, if... um, um, So the the Samaritan arranges um, to, to come back and pay the full bill, whatever it is, for all the care that this man has needed at the inn. And if the Samaritan hadn't arranged that and the bill had not been paid, the innkeeper... Would, it would have been within his rights to sell this beaten man as a slave. Um, and his, his rescue, he wouldn't have been rescued at all. He would have just gone back into slavery to be treated. Well, we don't, we don't know how. But the, um, the Samaritan meets the full cost of this man's complete recovery, and he does it willingly out of compassion. Now for the most important question surrounding this parable, and that is, why does Jesus choose a Samaritan as the hero in the story? Is it to shame the Jews um, to, to say, well, even Samaritans know how to love better than you do? I don't think it's for that reason. Jesus is putting himself at the centre of the story, because Jesus is the, the good Samaritan. Jesus is the hated outsider who has come at great personal cost to save a desperate and hurting humanity. In this parable, we are the beaten man at the side of the road. Our sin condemns us to wait our certain death, but Jesus is the one to come and rescue us and pay the full price for our restoration. Jesus's death is the price and his resurrection makes sure of our own healing and restoration. So how has this revelation as Jesus, as my good Samaritan, affected me in, in my life? Um, I'd really like to tell you a funny story right now, um, but I've only got a sad story, um, and I've, I've wondered about whether to tell it, but it, it brings glory to God, so I'm going to, but I'm, I might need some help. <laughs> so in May 2020, I went into hospital to have um, my little girl, um, and she arrived safely. Nothing too scary happened. Thanks be to God, um, And Dave was allowed into the delivery suite for the birth, but he was um, not allowed um, onto the ward um, where I was recovering. No visitors were allowed. So a couple of hours um, after Chloe was born, I was taken down to the ward, and he had to say goodbye to his wife and his then nameless baby, because we hadn't had time to name her yet. Um, And at the time, all the medical staff had no concerns about me or about Chloe. Um, They expected us to go home the next day. Um, And the next day, I was so relieved, the midwife came around with my discharge paperwork um, and said, we just need to check you both over one more time before you can go home. Chloe was doing great. Um, When they checked my blood pressure, it was through the roof um, and um, I couldn't go home. And um, I wouldn't go home for another um, three days. And that hospital stay was undoubtedly the most difficult experience of my whole life. Um, uh, the, the, the midwives and the medical staff took care of my medical needs and to a certain extent my physical needs, um, but there was no one there to meet my emotional needs, which were great. I was a brand, brand new mum and very overwhelmed um, and very aware that I was the, the advocate for this tiny, tiny baby, um, brand new baby. And um, there was no one there to advocate for me. And I was incredibly lonely. Um, and I remember, I don't know when it was during the hospital stay. And, but I know that they just told me that I would have to stay in yet another night. And that, I, that was crushing and I just thought, I can't, I don't know how to, how to carry on. It's like something has to change if I'm going to stay this side of just shutting down. Um, and I, cry, I just cried out to God and I prayed the most desperate prayer I've ever prayed. Um, I said, I know, like the rules don't allow anyone to come and see me. And I know you can't answer this prayer, but I need, su- I need to see someone physically there with me in the room that knows me, knows my name. And I'm not, I'm not just a patient on a chart. Um, and I, I went to sleep after that. And when I woke up, I remember there was, um, I heard someone calling my name and it was someone sitting on the end of my bed um, I sat up, and it was my community midwife, Sue. Now, she's the midwife that I saw throughout my whole pregnancy every um, every few weeks, and I can't explain how transformative that was in that moment. Um, just her kind encouragements um, just lifted me up and s- scraped me off the floor, really, um, and it was... It was just the hope that I needed right then um, to carry on. And that is the most surprising, transformative, and timely answer to prayer I've ever had. Now, the point of me telling this story isn't to make you all feel sorry for me. It's to show you that God is in the business of helping people, that are in desperate situations, in places that are devoid of compassion and seem hopeless. And I know that it's true because it happened to me. So if you have been left broken by a lack of help when you needed it most, there is healing for you. And if you've been left bitter and mistrustful because the people that you counted on let you down there is healing for you. If you're in a desperate place right now and you know that you need help, turn your eyes to the Lord and he'll hear you. Even the beaten man, he was unconscious, he couldn't ask for help and yet he received it. Now the salvation of Jesus is not partial or temporary. He offers us complete healing from our pain, from our sin, and from our brokenness. We may not see the completeness of that healing in this life, but be sure that it has been promised to us, and it starts now. The kingdom of God is now. Psalm 121 starts like this. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My lovely midwife Sue, she was a way for Jesus' love to be there physically with me. Are you open to being a presence of love for someone who needs it? If God asked you to help someone in need, would you be listening? Would, Would you hear him? Now, I I think that it's really important that we always identify with the beaten man in this parable. We need to understand Jesus' love for us and how Jesus saved us. Then, out of our love and our thankfulness for God, our compassion comes out of that, our love then flows out of that, and then we help others. In the conversation with the legal expert at the beginning, Jesus agrees that um, we should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and love, our, and love our neighbor as ourselves. When you love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and your mind and your strength, then loving your neighbor is just another part of loving God. Um, th- this whole bit needs a whole extra talk um, but then we won't eat lunch, and that will be sad. Um, so I'm going to stop there. Um, but do continue to, um, to think about that and how you're going to um, be able to apply that um, throughout the rest of the day. And um, yeah, share stories with each other of how people have, have helped you and about how you have been um, able to show um, Jesus' love to others as well throughout the day. Thanks.